You you really want to talk about Cubs baseball, though, right? <laughs> That's why we're here. Chicago Cubs 2015 National League champs. I got to tell you, I am delighted to have Joe Madden out of the ALEs. <laughs> that guy, I think he is. I think he's the best manager in baseball. I really do. Well, um, I, I heard similar things about uh, Don Baylor, Dusty Baker. And Lou Pinella before they signed down with the Cubs too. So <laughs> yeah, Sweet Lou was a good manager. He, I, I think. I mean, you got to like, you, you know, he, he's got a certain style and intensity, but he, he was a good manager with the Yankees. I thought he was a good manager with Seattle. Uh, you well, know, he, he did actually succeed fairly well with the Cubs, but they also, you know, not every year. <laughs> yeah, well, they were better than the Cubs usually are, but they weren't. They never got up to good. No. No, uh, it, it hurt me because Lou Pinella, unless I'm, my memory is really shot, he was managing Seattle in 95, the year right before the Yankees started their, their dynasty. But the it year was I had a Mariners hat. Right. And uh, Mattingly, it was Mattingly's last season, and the first time he got in the postseason. And, uh, I mean, he played, Mattingly played great. He had a great series, but the, the Mariners won. And it just was salt in the wound that it was Yankee legend Lou Pinella at the helm. Well, we'll see. I'm I'm actually so uh, I'm actually going to CES for the first time. I remember this is something we talked about either a year or two ago. <laughs> yeah, so I, might, totally. I, might, I might actually put a little money on the Cubs. We'll see. Oh yeah, you got. Oh, no, you got to do that. Right, you got to. You got to. You got to make a prop bet. All right, we're gonna do it. Prop bets are fun uh, for two reasons. One, you get great odds. I don't know what the Cubs are at, but I'll bet they're probably like fifteen to one at least. Maybe more. Something I don't and even know. Number two, you have the challenge of keeping track of that little piece of paper for oh, yeah. nine months. <laughs> right? And it's like, I don't even think they print them on super high quality. It's like uh, that heat transfer, you know, like regular paper receipts you get from uh, retail stores. And if you like leave it out in the sun or something, it'll fade to nothing. Or in your wallet for. Yeah, because the heat, yeah. you know, it's so you. I, and I find that so weird because you would think, you know, you know, casino. You know, I guess it's because they don't lose if you're if you yeah, right. destroy your ticket. But breakage. It, yeah. Okay. I, there I've, we go. There's our Kickstarter uh, casino receipts uh, preserver kit. Yeah. Boom. Print, print them Done. on inkjet or something. You know, something's gonna last. Oh, you should get good odds on that. <laughs> um, when did you decide to go to CES? A few weeks ago, it was presented as an option for me. Uh, here at Quartz, and I've never been, and I figured this is the perfect year to go. Um, you know, when I have the the name of a, of a big news agency behind me to get good meetings and that kind of stuff, but also work for a site that doesn't churn out you know hundreds of of stories a day, so I won't have to file an article every half an hour. Uh, yeah, that sounds like the way to do it. Yeah, it's gonna be great. It's a perennial topic. It's a, it's like my my second week of January topic every year on this show is. Boy, I thought last year I should maybe go to CES. One of these years I got to go, and I didn't do it this year again. Yeah, I think that was us last year. I do, I, I, I do it every year. I have the yeah. same thought. Well, I'll let you know how it is. <laughs> and it's, def, it's, it's one of those things where my natural inclination towards procrastination is just fails because it's really you can't do it at the last – well, you could do it at the last minute, but it's super expensive. Yeah, and it's kind of annoying like they make you – book your hotels through their centralized system and the flights are expensive or sold out. So even, you know, not when I booked a month and a half out, it was still 
kind of annoying, but yeah, anyway, it's going to be awesome. I'll bet there's a ton of people from New York go. So yes. Yeah. 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 Like, I think if you lived in the, you know, Joe random city, like I'll bet Philadelphia's Vegas flights probably aren't that different that week because I bet there's not that many people from here that go, but the hotels is, are a mess. Yeah. Yeah. Right, I can't wait to hear, hear, hear your report. Yeah. It's going to be great. No. And I totally think that's the way to do it is to do it as a publication that has a measured tone, not a bombardment of we got to have 30 posts a day and, you know. Yeah, it's funny. I was talking to someone from a large consumer electronics company the other day, and they're like, so are you coming to our press conference? You're coming to our media day? And I'm like, nope, I'm not even getting there until Tuesday after all that crap has already happened. That's the way to do it. Yeah. So no waiting in line for, you know, stupid... uh, Whatever they're going to show, big big TVs and home automation stuff. Probably, I have no idea. Yeah, that's a good question. I wonder what the big thing will be. TVs are I always. Think, I thing. think my sense. Is, yeah, I mean TVs, but my sense is that this is the year that all the connected home stuff starts to gel. So, um, you know, home automation stuff and fr- fr- uh, refrigerators that talk to your pet. I'll that bet watches watches have got to be huge. Oh yeah, watches be- too. Because a and Apple Watch aside, Android Wear is out. It's a real thing, and it's already starting to accelerate. Where they're you know like when they first announced it back at at I/O in June, there were two watches, and they both were really clanky. I mean, they, they sucked. Um, then the Moto three sixty, or as I call it, the two seventy hit. Yeah. And and now there's been a trickle of watches that are de- you know that seem reasonable. They seem like something that people might want to consider. Um, yeah, we'll see. That that'll be interesting. Um, I've gotten a few pitches on like shirts that have sensors built in, so you can measure your heart rate through your shirt. So we'll see about that. Yeah, because the other thing that I think makes it has to be watches is is then going back to Apple Watch with Apple Watch on the True. horizon. Yeah, and we're clearly not going to hear anything new about Apple Watch before CES, right? You know? And probably and, not during either, unless they do one of those silly Apple leak type things where right. they. But that means yeah. any consumer electronics company that wants to bet on smartwatches because Apple, you know, it's right. You know, Betting on what Apple is interested in is a pretty good way forward. Uh, they're going to want to get that stuff out before, as soon as they can. You right. Know, so that's this part- is HP's chance to show off the yeah. slate <laughs> in Steve Ballmer's last keynote or whatever. Right. Uh, Sweet. Yeah. I have, I have a little bit of follow up from previous episodes of this of this uh, broadcast. Um, Star Wars follow up. Uh, a little bit of Star Wars follow-up. I have to go all the way back to the Merlin episode, oh, which nice. was uh, 99, episode 99. That was a, Yeah, that was four episodes ago. So um, we talked about Roman numerals in the Super Bowl, and then in a subsequent week followed up that they are, the NFL is indeed dropping the Roman numerals for not this year's Super Bowl, next year's 50, which would have been just L, and that looks stupid. Um so they're just going to put Super Bowl five zero, and I was happy, but it ends up they're only doing that for Super Bowl fifty because L looks so stupid. Starting with Super Bowl fifty one, they're going back to the stupid Roman numerals. So bad news on the Roman numeral front. Um, Star Wars. No, I don't think I have any follow up on Star Wars. Although there was, I saw a really funny um, bit from uh, 
Stephen Colbert defending the new Sith lightsaber. Oh, nice. I'll put it in the show notes, but it was it's really, really funny. What do you think of it? Well, um, I don't really know much about Star Wars. Uh, what? I know. I'm sorry. Uh, although, so my first exposure, yeah, I don't know. My dad showed me Caddyshack and those types of movies instead. So we were like a Zappa household, not a... Uh, <laughs> Not a Beatles household. Um, so, but the first time I ever saw Star Wars was when they re-released them in the mid '90s on probably the biggest screen that existed in Chicago at that point at, at this movie theater downtown called McClurg Court. That was like, you know, five times bigger than any other movie screen. So that was kind of cool, and we went and saw those. Uh, and I've seen, and I've still never seen uh, Jedi. I'm bad. I need to do this at some point. <laughs> That's crazy. Sorry, I, I sound like an idiot now. Uh, anyway, I uh, I don't know what I was going to say, but I I thought the new lightsaber looks fine. That's crazy. You don't have an opinion. You your opinion I have no does opinion. not count. No, it does not count. I have no opinion. All right, the other bit of um, sorry uh, follow up, <laughs> and this is really minutia, but why not? Let's be let's be precise. Is in last week's episode with Whiskus, we were talking about uh, Bond movies, and uh, and I brought up that the. Uh, Lazenby one uh, on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Uh, Dave was under the impression that it was universally, everybody hated it, everybody knew it was a mistake. And it turns out, I, I am correct on this, that it's very divisive. Most people seem not to like it and agree it was it was a dud. But there's a, a fairly sizable contingent of Bond movie fans who who either think it's their favorite or one of their favorites, one of the better ones. And uh, I have not seen that one. Is it, What is polarizing about it? Well... I think it's, I think it's a, a, a weird story. I think I think Lazenby's take on the character was off. I just mm. I just don't buy him as Bond. Other people think he's great though. It's it's you know, he's definitely not Sean Connery. That's for sure. And and uh, I don't know. And it, there's something about the story, the way the story is written, that I just think it's it's a dud. But some people really like the uh, the direction. Some people think the action sequences. Are are some of the best of that era, um, and I think I, f I think his name is Peter Hunt. And in the earlier movies, he was um, uh, the editor of the movies, and he got to direct this one. And some people think that that helped make the action sequences better because he knew how to shoot them to give the editing the footage that they would need. You know that an editor's perspective on directing makes for better action sequences. Film Crit Hulk. Do you ever read Film Crit Hulk? I don't, but I am aware of it, and I yeah. appreciate its existence. Uh, he's he's a big fan. He he did a thing where he wrote about all the Bond movies, and he really liked. Oh, it. cool! A anyway, friend of the show, Nat Irons. Um, I think he's at Nat Irons on Twitter. Great guy. Works at Black Pixel. Really smart guy. Longtime friend of the show. Longtime daring fireball reader. I mean, like back in two thousand two, this guy was sending me uh, typos and stuff like that. Great guy. I said it was his favorite Bond movie. And in fact, he corrected me on Twitter and said it is in his top six. He is a fan of the movie, but he would not he would not call it his favorite. And I wouldn't want to besmirch somebody in such a way. So let's clear the record for uh, for Nat. Oh, and the last thing, Whiskus made a mistake. Uh, the Chris Cornell song, uh, I forget the name of it, but it was the theme of it was not the theme of uh, Quantum of Solace. That was the theme for Casino Royale. Uh and I don't know, I was tired or something, let it slide. I, I didn't catch it when Whiskus made that mistake. 
uh, the the theme for Quantum of Solace was the Jack White one, which was kind of ah. weird. Hmm. You've watched? Yeah, I haven't, you, yeah, I haven't seen, seen that one for a while though. I've been have watching seen, the old ones. You have seen James Bond movies. Oh yeah, yeah. I've been watching the old ones. Um, I, I, you know, I started seeing all the new ones as they had come out, and I'd never seen the old ones. And then after you and Dan started doing the shows, I started watching them, and actually. Uh, you know, as you know, they're so annoying to stream. So I've had to end up buying a bunch of them. But yeah, uh, yeah I dig them. The streaming rights on those Bond movies are the craziest thing in the world. Like it's somebody Twittered me the other day that a bunch of the Connery ones are back on Netflix, but they're not all of them. There's And, and they're all... No, and I think a bunch were on HBO Go, which is where I watched one recently. But not all of them. Not all of them. And not the ones I wanted to watch. So right. I was like, well, okay. Yeah, I, who knows what those negotiations are like. But you would just think, though, that it would be like a blanket deal. Cause are they all, all one company? All except for Never Say Never Again, mm-hmm. which is an entirely separate long story about how it exists. But all the other Bond movies are from Eon Productions. Eon, right. the, the abbreviation, everything or nothing. Uh, so it's just bizarre. It must just be that, you know, that's... And which conglomerate owns those? Uh is it Sony or one of those? It used to be. Who owns MGM now? Hmm. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Well, it's but anyway, it's crazy. It's very now frustrating. You, now you'll have more follow-up. Sorry, yeah. man. <laughs> I think it's one of those things like uh, it's like like buttered like a piece of buttered toast is always going to land face down. It's like whatever Bond movie you're in the mood to watch is always not going <laughs> to be available for free on Netflix. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, why don't I just take a break right here and uh, do the first sponsor read, and then we'll get started on uh, new Perfect. stuff. Uh, and it's a brand new sponsor. I am very, very uh, excited about this. Uh, it's called Hello, H-U-L-L-O, which I think is how uh, uh, Bilbo used to say hello in the Lord of the Rings movies. Uh, have you ever tried a buckwheat whole pillow? Have you, Dan? No. Well, I never even heard of such a thing, but popular for centuries throughout Asia, buckwheat pillows conform to your body and provide cool, comfortable support. Uh, Hello suits every person's sleeping style. Are you a side sleeper, back sleeper, stomach sleeper? Hello can be adjusted to conform perfectly to the shape of your head and neck, providing ideal support that's just for you. I'm usually a back sleeper. I just sleep like like I'm in a coffin. Sometimes I sleep on on my stomach, though. Who knows how I wake up? Uh, air flows freely through Hello's buckwheat hole fill, keeping it cool all night long. Uh, adjust the thickness to your personal preference by adding or removing the holes anytime. It's made in the USA with quality construction and materials. Uh, it improves on traditional buckwheat pillows by incorporating only the highest quality materials. Pre-shrunken, durable twill cotton case high-quality Dunlap hidden zipper, and the buckwheat hole fill is grown and milled in North Dakota. Uh, it's an organic, organically friendly, uh, environmentally friendly, I should say, organic product, no chemical-based foams or bird feathers, 100% unbleached certified organic cotton. Uh, these guys sent me one of these, or actually two, so we could, uh, my wife and I could both try these out. And I opened it up, and I thought that they were out of their freaking minds because it seemed as though I—it's like a like a pillow stuffed full of coffee beans. I don't—I mean, it's—it is definitely not like a normal pillow. It is 
entirely different. Uh, it's not like, oh, wow, that's weird that a, a pillow full of holes, uh, buckwheat holes, would feel like a pillow. It doesn't feel like a normal pillow. It's very heavy, much heavier, um, and it makes a crinkly sound. Definitely has a sound like you're sleeping on a, uh, a bag, like I said, a bag full of coffee beans. Uh, figured I'd try it out, though, and that was like two weeks ago, and I've still got it on my bed. It's pretty cool. Uh, I still every I wake up every morning though I still think man this pillow is wild but I like it it's definitely uh, gives me a better night's sleep than I had with a regular pillow. Uh, not at all like memory foam. Ever see that? I don't I don't really care for the memory foam pillows. They seem like the weird the way they conform to your head. This thing the conforming to your head I it's not it's not at all like a foam or anything like that. It's just like sleeping on uh, a bag of beans. I don't know. It's nature. Yeah. So here's the deal. Sounds crazy. It seems like a weird thing you'd buy off a podcast. But here's their deal. You try it for 60 nights. And if you're not satisfied, they will give you a full refund. No questions asked. So you can do this. Um, the small ones are 49 bucks. Uh, standard is 79 King size, 129 So they're not cheap. But you can save money on each additional one. You can save uh, 5 10 or 20 on each additional one that you buy. And it's 60 days, no risk, no questions asked, money back. So if you've got any curiosity in this and you're thinking, man, it sounds crazy, but Gruber says it works, just go try it, sign up, buy the thing. And if you don't like it, just send it back to them for free. You don't have to pay a damn thing. So try it. Here's where you go to find out more. Hello Pillow, H-U-L-L-O, Pillow, P-I-L-L-O-W.com slash talk show just slash talk show uh and the last bit one percent of all of their profits are contributed to the nature conservancy so uh, my thanks to hello pillow give them a try it's really crazy i really i thought i was being pranked when i first opened the box <laughs> sounds cool yeah it worked gluten-free first thing i want to talk about i want to talk about this thing uh I sent you the link it was an article by eric jackson writing at uh uh i was confused forbes and fortune i think it was forbes it's forbes yeah and as a former forbes employee we love it when you confuse forbes and fortune i i you know <laughs> what i just did it the other day with there was a story by a fortune writer and i of course attributed it to forbes it really is as simple as in my mind they're both business magazines and they start for Yep. And that's it. That's well, what, how just, my mind files them away. Just remember that fortune is the boring one. and uh... <laughs> It's like the index in my mind, like the hashing index. It only has like three letters. Yeah. It only goes to F-O-R and the rest. Anyway, um, now he, he wrote about this earlier in the year too, and then I politely rebutted it. But his point is he, he wants to see Apple uh, use their massive cash reserves to make big acquisitions. And my take earlier in the year was more or less that he was saying, just do something with your money. And with, which seems to me ill-advised. Like, it seems to me like he's articulating a viewpoint that Apple has to do something with this money. And, you know, I, I, I just disagree. I think doing, just doing something for the sake of doing something is going to lead to distractions. So he has a follow-up. He just posted it. It was at the very end of the month. It was like over Thanksgiving. Um, and to summarize, I would say he's he thinks that the uh, what they are doing with their money, with the stock buybacks, which is 
I think most, I think it's about 70% of what they're doing. And then the, uh, the dividends that they're now paying are a waste of money and that they, they're not really, that the, the stock rise that we've seen since Apple's instituted this would have happened anyway. Um, just because Apple's financials are doing better and the, the vague, they're not going to be able to survive without Steve Jobs fear that might have been depressing the stock is gone. Nobody really seems to think that they're in bad hands under Tim Cook's leadership anymore, um, which I think everybody would agree with that. Um, so what he thinks they should do, even it, he doesn't think they should have done that. And what he thinks they should do now is he and he's, I think he's dead serious about this. He thinks they should buy Tesla which he thinks would cost about $45 billion. Twitter, which would be about $40 billion. Buy Pinterest for $15 billion. Uh, then spend $10 billion on better batteries through R&D and spend $10 billion um, to make iCloud work pro properly. <laughs> so what, what do you think about this? Uh, so, I don't mean to laugh. And, and, this, and this also happens – so I also published a story today, Friday, um, called, you know, whatever, 10 Things I Learned About Apple This Year on Quartz. And one of the you know, one of the things I touched on is, is was a little commentary about Apple's, uh, you know, basically doing their first big buy ever this year, which was Beats uh, Audio and Beats Music and – or Beats Electronics or whatever it's called, um, which was – Three billion dollars, which is not forty billion, but it's still pretty big. Um, and you know, with the context of people over the years saying Apple should buy all these companies, uh, the the one that's been thrown about a lot actually uh, in years past was Adobe. That Apple should buy Adobe so that it owns the uh, you know professional yeah. desktop uh, software market. And if, and w one of the articles I found while researching this was. During Fireball, 14 May 2008, why Apple won't buy Adobe, and I think the the post you wrote here, if you could, if you want to do a a find and replace with with almost every company on that list, um, you know, you could pretty much paste it in there. I, you know, and and then you also made a, you've also written about, you know, why Apple buying Tesla wouldn't necessarily be the craziest thing because it kind of fits um fits the model a little bit of what they do but you know if you look at at pinterest and twitter and tesla first of all you can't buy three companies that big at the same time i don't think that's even possible from a logistical or regulatory standpoint like imagine right. if you announced a hundred billion dollars in acquisitions in a week i my guess is that the the uh government would say uh, yeah, very funny. Uh, okay, now we're going to make you wait for two years while we sift through all this stuff. Yeah, there's let's let's so beyond that and yeah, let's you know, just put that aside for now. But I do agree that. with you, and, and in particular, for example, I think that trying to acquire Twitter and Pinterest simultaneously would definitely be very complicated. Getting approval much more complicated than buying one of them. Or the other, you right? Know, more, more than twice as complicated because yeah. it would be seen as and you know anti-competitive because in some ways Pinterest is a social network, yeah, and therefore it competes with Twitter. But beyond that, even if you had like you know, even if all that stuff was was totally doable, then you're Apple and you have to integrate Pinterest and Twitter into your company, and you know, first of all, how, and second of all, why? Like, what do you? You know, what do you do with that? And it just seems to me like that is not what Tim Cook needs to be doing right now. Yeah. Um, what, 
you know, Twitter is not going to change Apple in a way that would make it, you know, solve all of its problems. I think there are there are much, much bigger problems at Apple that have nothing to do with spending cash to acquire new companies that have some relation to, you know, potential future businesses for Apple or something like that. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, the why is the bigger question than the how. Because the easiest answer to how would be to acquire them and kind of let them run independently. But then, you know, I mean, like, how to me has some solutions. It's why, though, is the, big, is the first question. Right. Which, by the way, is, is harder than it sounds because the people who made Pinterest and, well, maybe not Twitter, but the people who made Pinterest what it is don't necessarily want to keep making it under the ownership of a bigger company. So. Right. This is, a, this is a very common problem. But anyway, the why is, is ultimately more interesting, or the why yeah, not, be, I guess. Because I don't see how owning Twitter, or let's just focus on Twitter, but owning, cause owning Twitter, to me, doesn't help Apple do anything that Apple already does. There's no, it, it solves nothing, it, you know, that in, in terms of Apple's core businesses, which is really selling computing hardware. In, in a, now an array of form factors, traditional PCs and laptops, tablets, and of course, cell phones, and coming soon, the watch, which are all computers. That's really, you know, fundamentally, that's what Apple does is they make computers. And the way that they succeed is by making c- computers that are the best in the world as perceived by a significant number of people who are therefore willing to pay a premium for them. And to me, that's Apple in a nutshell. And there's almost nothing that the company does that matters that isn't in service of that. Which is why it has all this cash to spend in the first place. So for example, yeah, exactly. And that's how they got all this cash. So for example, the whole thing of iTunes isn't at first, at least at like one level of indirection, has nothing to do with selling computers. But I think like two levels of indirection, it does because um, one type of computer that's no longer really a, a significant part of the company's business, but one type of computer is iPods, computers that are computing devices that are meant as portable music and video players. And to sell those, it really, really helped. I would say it was essential to make it easy to buy content for them. Therefore, that's why iTunes exists. And I think you're selling iTunes a little short. I mean, at its peak of utility in the early 2000s, like it was way easier to use than Winamp or something like that for managing a music library and and ripping CDs and that sort of stuff. Um, And then, you know, Arguably, more importantly, it, it became the, the the home of sync, uh, of syncing your devices to your to each other, to your your iPod, and eventually your iPhone to your Mac. Which you know that's a that's a really great uh, place to be if you can. I was a Michael Gartenberg, I think, once tweeted something: "If you own sync, you own everything." Yeah, I don't know something like yeah. that, and and you know, and that's what iCloud is supposed to do right now. So, um, iTunes actually probably sold a lot of Macs, I would say. Yeah, and I, I I don't mean to sell it short, I, yeah. but it's all in service of selling selling Mac, selling iPods, selling phones. You know, right. it definitely, it it that they had the infrastructure in place, both the the cloud infrastructure of having the store and the cloud servers that could send content over and could do activation. Remember, you used to have to activate your your phone, your iPhone, oh, yeah. 
through iTunes. And the desktop software, which was on hundreds of millions of Macs and Windows PCs, it let them ship the iPhone sooner than they would have been able to otherwise if they didn't have it in place. Because for years, you know, three or four more years before iCloud really became an independent thing, you'd really, you know, they needed it to have the, you know, just for things like software update. They didn't have the infrastructure in place to do over-the-air software updates to the iPhone. And so if they wanted to do what they definitely wanted to do, which was control the software updates to the phone as opposed to the carrier, they needed iTunes for it. So I'm not trying to sell it short. I'm just saying, no, it was in service of that fundamental business of selling the best computing devices in the world. Yeah. And now, that, of course, the acquisitionist uh, would say, well... Uh, now Apple should buy Spotify because that's the the, uh, the future iTunes. So why doesn't Apple just spend the cash that it has and buy Spotify? That see that that I would not disagree with. I don't think they have to buy Spotify. I don't think they have to buy rather than build their own streaming music solution. But I, if if the news came out, you know, after we you and I get off this show and the news comes out late on friday that apple is in uh, you know made an offer to buy spotify i wouldn't be surprised at all would you uh well i was just making fun of it so uh, maybe really <laughs> i don't i, well, I now wouldn't... that i think about it um no I, well it... i well i might be surprised i wouldn't be shocked because yeah, yeah. it wouldn't seem out of character right in the it's... same way that beats beats was definitely a surprise yes um, but it's you know it it doesn't seem totally out of character. Right. And Spotify, like, it has, it, it seems to have survived long enough to actually be something important on its own, uh, both in terms of, you know, usage and kind of a community and this, the product that it's built. So, yeah, that wouldn't, you know, I don't, I don't know if, yeah, I guess the question is like, okay, does that, yeah, then there's all these dork questions like does that become the itunes app or does spotify i don't don't, you know i don't know the answer to that and um and i don't don't know if that even matters but yeah i think that like something like that which you know the question for all these deals would be like if even if apple shut all the android users off of these products in the planet you know and made them i apple only does that make the Apple product that much better that people would buy that instead of something else? No. I mean, and they right. could, it would, it would, the outcry, if they bought Twitter and made it uh, Apple only, it would, you know, the outcry would be phenomenal. I mean, it would lose most of its users. I, w- I would guess a majority, some majority of, of Twitter users are, you know, using devices or at least one device that's not an Apple product. Uh, it just wouldn't even, you know, I don't even, th- why would you buy yeah, them if you're Chrome. just going to, yeah, <laughs> like, or Windows, or, or the web, web, right? Yeah, even just the web. Um, It just, you know, and then what would be the point? It just, uh, it almost seems like to me buying Twitter would just be the, the, it would be a sign that Apple sees itself now as like a conglomerate, you know, like, like Berkshire Hathaway, where yeah. they just buy companies and they're like a meta company on top of them. Right. And and I'm not like an, uh, an expert in, in kind of uh, financial tricks and that kind of stuff. But someone explained to me uh, buybacks the other day as, you know, if you have this money and you think that the the best investment you can make is in yourself, if you think that Apple shares are going to go up, then that's probably the best investment you can make and just, you know, buy your own shares instead of buying shares in something else. Yeah, I've read that too. That's, that's um, very close to um, uh, 
uh, Warren Buffett, speaking of Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett's advice and take on buybacks is that it's, you know, it, it's like, like most of his stock advice. And again, I'm no expert, but it's, you know, it, it's as simple as that, that if you, if you think, yeah, exactly what you said, if you think that your stock is underpriced, then it's, you know, it's a good buy. It's a good, it's a good use of your money that yeah. it actually does help your shareholders and inflate the value of the company. And who better than the leadership of Apple to to have a sense as to whether they think that their stock is underpriced? You know? Right, right. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, and and this is again an area where I'm not like an expert, but um, you know, f f uh, finance reporters that I've talked to have said that Tim Cook has actually done a really good job at converting Apple from being a you know fast growth growth, growth, growth company to more of a blue chip where, yeah, it yeah. does have a dividend and buys back its shares and, you know, does things with its cash that a growth company probably wouldn't do. Uh, but that, in, you know, big institutional investors really respect the way that Tim Cook has done that. Yeah. And it's, I do, I, I, I as an outside observer who, who follows Apple mostly from the product and design side, not the business side, um, you know, I completely agree with that. And it does feel like, like the stock has settled because the, the market as a whole has accepted that transition that they're not looking for. I don't see people trying to, to figure out ways to make Apple watch an iPhone size business in any near time future. You know, it seems like expectations are reasonable. Whereas like two years ago, I feel like if they had announced what the watch then expectations would have been too too wild because people you know business writers people looking at it from a primarily financial perspective were asking how can apple keep growing at this crazy rate that they've grown the last seven years especially having seen you know the the first couple of years of the ipad come out right out of the gate super strong and look like maybe that was it right right and and look like oh wow this is going to be as big as the iphone right away and then you know, okay, here comes the watch. Now it's got to be that big too. Yeah, and I'm guilty as charged on that front. I, I've, I'm on the record as speculating. I didn't pick a year, but I, I was on the record of saying that I thought an iPad would be a bigger business than iPhone soon, meaning, you know, by now. And clearly that was wrong. It's not. It's, it's settled in far lower. It's actually growth that's stopped. That's not to say growth is stalled forever, but it's, right. you know, for about a year, maybe even longer, right? Didn't you count the quarters? Yeah, four of the last six quarters, it's actually shrunk year over year. So this year, it will almost certainly be smaller than it was last year. Not yeah. even just slowing growth, but actually whereas, shrink, shrinkage. Where, whereas iPhone, which is older, is still continues to grow. Right. They've never had a stronger launch than they yeah. did with the, the this year's models. And, of course, the iPod has been shrinking for several years and, you know, until very recently was still a, you know, a non-laughable business. Um so, you know, it's it's perfectly reasonable for things to eventually decline, but I don't think anyone would have expected that the iPad, iPod, iPad would be in its decline already. Um, yeah. And, it, you know, it's probably not permanent. I I don't think that tablets are, you know, were a, were a fad. No, uh, I don't think so either. I think what it was, I, I've been thinking about this, and I know this is a little bit of an aside on, on this game of let's spend Apple's money, but... No, we're um, going to spend Apple's money in a minute. So yeah, yeah. If we, you know, if, this, if we didn't have a long digression, it wouldn't really be the episode of the absolutely. Talk show. I my my gut feeling on the iPad sales stalling is that 
uh, in the early years where it was growing, and, and this is what made me think it was going to be bigger than iPhone, is in the first few years of iPad, it's like iPad's year one was bigger than iPhone's year one, and iPad's year two was bigger than iPhone's year two. It never was bigger than iPhone, but it was bigger than the iPhone in 27, 28, 29, you know, in years one, two, three of iPad. And then it fell behind that curve. And I think it's because the two markets are entirely different. The phone market is literally every person on the planet who can afford a phone. Like, that's where we're headed, is that however many billion people there are on the planet, if they are in a, you know, a country, you know, and you have, you know, a hundred bucks and you can afford some monthly service charge, you're going to have a cell phone if you don't already. And it's so it's an enormous market. It's almost capped by the number of people on the planet. Uh, and I think the market for tablets is really a sub market of the PC market. I think what it is, is, is that it's, it's really just part, I think that the iPad is best seen as part of the PC market. And what, what happened in the early years is that the market was vastly underserved by PCs, portable PCs that are simpler, more portable, and get way better battery life. Like the things that made the iPad the iPad, that it just, it just, sucked all the air out of the growth in laptop sales, including, you know, MacBooks for a while. Um, that the iPad style of lap of portable computing is just way better for so many use cases than, um, than laptops are. And that it, it had go, go growth while it fulfilled that unmet need. And then it just reached the point where, you know, Everybody who did, who really wanted one got one, and they still work, you know. And that there's no then the second factor is that iPads continue, you know, two, three, four year old iPads continue to work just great for most people's needs, and so they don't replace them every two years like they do a phone. So that's my that's my digression on iPad decline or growth decline. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. Um, you know, I'm not sure. You know, this is this is like an example where it's tempting to use your own personal example, uh, but I don't know how. Well, you know, so I still use an, an iPad One every day to watch video uh, in my house, but we're about to have to replace it because Time Warner Cable is finally ending support for the uh, their app <laughs> for, oh, really? for iOS Five or whatever it runs. So um, maybe maybe Apple. Uh, <laughs> ask them to do that so that we would buy a new iPad. Um, yeah, my dad has an iPad one still and I wouldn't say he loves it cause he's just not into technology, but he swears he does not want a newer one. It's just fine. It's in perfect shape, but now candy crush doesn't run. Uh Oh <laughs> yeah. It's just like it crashes at a certain point and I'm sure it's, be, you know, I said, I probably, it's just the type of bug that slips in because I bet they don't test on the iPad one anymore. And now they're going to get complaints about it and they'll fix it in the next update, but you just have to wait for them to update it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the iPad I, one, it, the iPad one is sort of an exception too, because there's a lot of things that have dropped support for iPad one. Right. But iPad two is effectively still on the market. It's because it's like the guts of that cheap, uh, uh, oh, the mini non-retina mini yeah. is effectively an iPad too. Yeah, and the half iP the uh, cash registers at at the 
coffee shops of America. So, yeah, like if anything, the opposite problem with iPad two, where developers are going to be saddled with supporting that level of you know CPU and RAM, uh, are, it's going to be years. And I, you know, I think the fact that they're still, and I know a lot of people really complain about the fact that they're still selling that because it's, you know, it's, it's holding back that, that level of, of, uh, baseline support, you know, where you really only have to support X number of years of iPhones going back. iPad is sort of stretching that a lot further because they're keeping that, uh, iPad two level of, of device around. But is, on the other yeah. hand, I think it's a sign that in the real world, millions of people, that's good enough. Totally. And, you know, I think the like the maybe it just got a little ahead of itself. Like people were everyone bought a tablet and then some people bought two or three because they were, you know, getting better or coming in at smaller sizes and that kind of stuff. And now, you know, combine that with the probably longer, much longer replacement cycle than a cell phone. Uh, and the smaller market, now we're seeing the results of that. And, you know, maybe in a year or two, as people, um, you know, grow tired or, or as their current iPads uh, become less useful, they'll, they'll replace them. I think a lot of it is on Apple uh, to, and, you know, I don't want to repeat a million people who've talked about this, but is really on Apple now to, to further define what the iPad is for. Uh, and I think that that they're starting to do that. Um, yeah. You know, with, with I, the, I, ex I expect it to grow sort of like the way the Mac has, you know, like slowly, but surely if, right. if they can keep, if they can keep it ahead of, you know, the market, which is central. I mean, there's a lot of times when I, when I, I talk, uh, I make the assumption that Apple's going to continue thriving and, and sometimes critics of, you know, my writing or, or just, you know, readers who with critic, crit thinking critically will, We'll point that out and and assume that it's some kind of bias, um, or that I think Apple is magic and that they you know magically just no matter what they do they're going to succeed. It's all based on the fundamental assumption that they can keep doing what they've been doing for close to twenty years, which is making superior products. Whether everybody agrees that they're superior or not, you know, some number of people have seen their devices as su superior in significant ways, and assuming they can keep doing that, I think they can keep growing. You know, so there's there is an assumption there, but I think it's going to grow like the Mac, where the Mac has done great the last few years and it's growing in an overall shrinking market, but it's it's very slow growth compared to the iPhone. Yes. All right. So it, now it, I'm going to end this parenthesis and I'm going to say, okay, now you're Tim Cook with a hundred billion dollars. How do you spend it to keep making those products great? And I don't. It's not buying Twitter and Pinterest. I think it's, you know. Uh, and I wrote this in my piece today, like what, what would be ideal is if they could, if they had a year where they could just focus on making iOS and macOS and all their software better, that's not feasible. But if they could increase their engineering organization so that there were enough people to A, build the new stuff they wanted to build and B, keep refining the old stuff, um, that that would be a good use of money. Obviously, it's hard to hire engineers and they're having to open up new offices and other places to do that kind of thing. But that's where I'd like to see Apple spend their money. Right. And then there's the whole mythical man month um, uh, factor where you can't, even if you can get more good engineers, you can't solve individual projects problems just by throwing more engineers at them. True. More engineers would definitely help. I, I don't think there's a single company 
in technology today that's not doesn't feel talent starved. I really don't. I, I mean, I think it's uh, I think it's universal. Google, Apple, Microsoft, Twitter, any of those companies, my, Facebook, any of those companies. It, you know, for everything I've seen is that the you know the recruiting market is is as more as tenacious or more tenacious than it's ever been. Um, but it's not about throwing more people at the same projects. It's having more people to spread into, you know, the size of a team is not going to grow, but it's being able to have more teams. Yeah. Right. So maybe Apple should buy one of those coding schools. There you go. <laughs> uh, no, I just like, I, you know, my, you know, and I've been watching, you know, I've been using Apple products for 25 years now or more. And, you know, nothing was ever perfect, but it does certainly feel now like there are some holes in the products I use every day where, you know, nothing is really, really bad, but it's it could be better to be it's great. stretched a little thin. Yeah, I think. And that they've, you know, I and maybe that's a good thing. Maybe in the grand scheme of things, if you, if you can't achieve perfection and you, you know, and let's just assume, you know, it's human nature that nobody's perfect. It's a little better to err on the side of going too fast than to err on the side of going too slow. Totally. Right? That you want to be on that too fast side and not the too slow side. And, you know, I think what we've seen in the last year is that Apple's being a little too fast as is they're a little too far away from that optimal line. You know, things like all the continuity features and stuff like that. Uh, most of them work great, but they're none of them feel quite, to me, like perfect. Like one thing that, that has definitely changed my daily computing is because I'm, I'm especially between phone and Mac in, you know, in the house is I'll go downstairs and get more coffee uh, and I'll take my phone out. And I'll see something. And now, ooh, I want to link that on Daring Fireball. And I used to do something like send it to Pinboard and come up to my Mac and load Pinboard and do that. Now I use AirDrop. I AirDrop to myself every day, multiple times. And usually it's perfect. You just say share. There, my other device shows up on AirDrop and I tap it. And a second or two later, it's there. And then I don't have like an extra bookmark in Pinboard that I really didn't want there permanently to do something with, you know. There's no, you know, I don't know what you would call it, di digital detritus left over. It's great. But then there's sometimes where I'm right there next to my Mac with my phone and I go to AirDrop and my Mac just doesn't show up. And I haven't turned Bluetooth off or anything like that. It just doesn't show up. And this is my experience as well. Like, I, And, and it's, it's frust most frustrating because I don't know why it's not working. Um, you know, it, and then... It seems like I'm not in my own contacts file or something like that, so I have to change the AirDrop settings to share with everyone and not just contacts. But yeah. it should know I'm me because I've, you know, I'm the same. I don't know how it knows I'm me or not. Maybe and it I, I've seen some people write that it really doesn't work well for them at all. For me, I would say it works at least ninety five percent of the time, maybe uh, more. I'm I'm like in the twenty five percent range, hmm. and, and maybe I just need to let loose with the permissions and let it share with everyone. But even just trying to sync with my own Mac or with, uh, you know, my wife's iPhone where we're definitely in each other's contact files, it still never wants to, to find them yeah. when we want to use it. Um, another example. I mean, it's not a new 2014 thing. It's actually a little bit older, but I mean, don't even get me started on my experience with iTunes match, which is just, it, 
I don't know. I, so like, I, yeah. my wife had it turned on too. And, and it's like, we got our new iPhones a couple months ago and, and it's like, she was just pissed. She came back from the gym the one day and she, at one point she had the new phone and she had all of her music and it was on the phone. Because it was the sort of thing with a new phone that she would have checked before she went to the gym the first time to listen to music. She had it. And she listened to music. And then, like, the next day, she got to the gym, and her phone had no songs. Zero. Just no songs. They're just gone. That's – yeah. Well, I just did something immensely stupid, which was I, I put a new hard drive in my iMac and tried to start from scratch. But my iTunes – of course, through iTunes Match, I already had all the, the metadata for all my – songs in it. So instead of trying to download them all from Apple servers, I uh, dropped the music folder on top of the iTunes uh, icon in the dock to, you know, re, you know, theoretically reassociate all those song files with yeah. the, uh, with the app. And then it duplicated everything in the listings. And I'm like, oh. oh shit, now I have two copies of every song. I'm gonna have to figure out how to go through and, and unduplicate it. And I tweeted something to that extent. And people are like, oh, don't me, you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> and then, you know, what's so funny. I came back the next day and it had totally fixed itself. <laughs> like the, nothing was duplicated. So I have no idea how that worked, but right. it there, actually it, worked. Uh, some of these features are supposed to be they're, they're like, like AirDrop. I don't even know quite how it works. I know it's some combination of Bluetooth and Wi-Fi and, you know, the, those, those like invisible Wi-Fi networks that don't show up as wi-fi networks but it it's encapsulating a lot of complexity to make all the handshaking and then it presents itself in a very simple interface but it's got to be bulletproof it's got to be that if i'm if this device a and device b are clearly within range of each other and they're both on it should be you know it, it should be every bit as consistent as when you open the finder and you go to your home folder that your home folder has all of your stuff in it Right. Every time you yep. go to the Finder and you go to your home folder, you know the the connection between OS X and the files on your hard drive is it's one hundred percent consistent. You know, like AirDrop has got to get that good. And right. It should yet. feel like magic, and that's you know, and that's where I'd rather see Apple invest right. in you know in kind of perfecting that. Uh, and I'm sure it's tricky. You know, Bluetooth for years seemed like it was just a joke of a technology, and it seems to have gotten better in yeah. more recently. But, and it's definitely, uh, definitely gotten better at battery life. The, the oh, Bluetooth yeah. low energy is aptly named. It's, you know, because I used to never keep Bluetooth on. I, 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 I always turned it off. I The only thing I really could have used it for, well, we have speakers that, that are Bluetooth, but I didn't use them. And then uh, my car, you can connect it to the car so you can get your, cars through the, your calls through the thing. But it was such a hassle to remember to turn Bluetooth off before I got in the car that I never did. And if I left it on, which I always would, if I did remember to turn it on, I would forget to turn it off when I got out of the car. And I'd be like, geez, I didn't even use my phone for a while. Why did the battery life drop? And it's because I had Bluetooth on. But it doesn't, you know, now it just seems like you can leave Bluetooth on your phone and it's, you know, it's good. I would say the biggest thing that Apple could do with the amount of cash that they have is focus it on ways that give them competitive edges that can't be matched by anyone else or by as few other companies as possible. Um, because I think that's the key to their success, you know, for 20 years is that they've had design chops that couldn't be matched. Um, and arguably still aren't. Right. 
and but focus on more and more of those things. I think that the whole Sapphire debacle in Arizona was an attempt at that. Yes, and they botched totally. it. I think you know the idea was that um, they were going to work out a deal with uh, what was that company? Uh, I don't remember, but yeah. Well, you know, they worked out a deal where they were going to, uh, you know, supply the capital to create an unheard of number of sapphire furnaces. And they would have the right to buy as, you know, the, you know, all of the sapphire that the facility produced, which if it had worked or if they can somehow salvage this and it does eventually work, they'll have something that nobody else will have. Nobody else, you know, Sam, Samsung won't be able to make a phone, you know, uh, in, in, in quantity with the Sapphire display because there won't be anywhere in the world to buy them. I think it's a perfect example of the sort of thing that Apple should be doing with its money. Yeah, and it's that, something that Apple can do now that it couldn't do in the old days before they had this giant, massive sum of cash. You know, in two thousand two, two thousand three, Apple didn't have the ability to spend ten or twenty billion dollars on X because they didn't have ten or twenty billion dollars sitting in a bank account. Right, and they, and, and instead they they famously like negotiated just crazy great terms on you know, on, on deals with suppliers and bought right. out all the flash right. or whatever. Right. But they now have... they're in a position to bankroll the creation of an entire new, basically, industry. I mean, uh, this. Uh, by the way, the company is called GT Advanced Technologies. Yeah. And the stat that I found crazy is that Apple already is using one-fourth of the entire world supply of Sapphire just for the iPhone camera lens and fingerprint reader. And that was the Wall Street Journal. So, you know, and they've already promised that the top two tiers of Apple Watch are going to have right. Sapphire covered displays. Right. So that's a crazy, you know, amount of of the market that they already control for these two tiny components. Uh, granted, on hundreds of millions of products, but but you can imagine now take those hundreds of millions of iPhones and multiply the Sapphire by whatever, 20 or something like that. And you are literally are creating an entire new market. And that's what you can do with when you have $100 billion. Uh, secondary digression is on the Sapphire thing. And one of the things I've been thinking about lately is one of the things that's come out of the court filings with the bankruptcy of GT Advanced Technology is that we now know what we suspected all along, but we know for sure now that at some point Apple had hoped to use Sapphire in this year's new iPhones for the displays, not just for the, the camera back. Um, that if everything had gone perfectly, or at least according to plan or some, some measure like that, Apple, you know, the iPhone 6 and 6 Plus would have Sapphire displays. Um, and they don't. Which makes me wonder how much, whether they're, they're now, the fact that GT Advanced failed, whether they're in trouble now with the Sapphire displays for the watches. Ah, Huh. And not that they would have to change it because they've already promised that they're coming out. I would be shocked if they switched to um, to glass for the addition and the stainless. But I'm wondering if we might not see one of those Apple launches where, you know, midnight, everybody's madly clicking. And, you know, by like 1215 Eastern or, or I guess they go on sale Pacific. I don't know. But, you know, 15 minutes after the pre-orders go online people are already seeing quotes of four to six weeks and you know the next day you're already seeing you know six seven weeks you know estimated delivery 
And oh, not yeah. necessarily be. because it's so many people buying them, but because it's the the sapphire. If if they were banking on GT advanced technology, the sapphire might be a significant constraint. Just right, both hypothetical. In, yeah, in in supply and maybe even in price. So, uh, although I, at this point they'd probably eat the money and make the watches. I have no idea. Yeah, but I'm not other... Tim I'm not Tim Cook. So yeah, I don't know. exactly. I think that this this is the sort of thing though that Tim Cook is, you know, the best in the world at, at yeah. least so far. But the other thing that I thought that I'm probably wrong about that, that the sapphire will be a significant gating issue on production is that they're going to need a lot less sapphire for Apple Watch than they would have for the phones. Because the phones are, you know, how many did they sell in the holiday quarter? How many they expected to sell this holiday quarter? I don't know, but I'm going to make up a number and say 50 million. Yeah, and figure maybe 30 to 40 million of those are iPhone 6s. Right. So that's, Something. Yeah. Could be. Let's just say at least 30 million iPhone 6s, which are bigger, and in the case yeah. of the 6 Plus, a lot bigger than the watch. Whereas the watch, you know, nobody knows how many they're going to sell, but especially in the more expensive stainless and addition levels. Right. It's not you know, 30 million in a quarter. And it's not a, a, a five inch display. And so, we're not going to be told how many they've no, sold. No, that, which, which is, is true. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's that's a great example. Another one which they did do is test flight. I mean, I think that's that's yeah. that's a that's the sort of thing that they that they actually probably know they should have done sooner, and and, and probably were just being snobby about it. Um, you know, why why are all these developers using test flight when they should be using our built in drag and drop email attachment uh, app testing system. So, you know, anytime you see a bunch of of app developers jumping onto a a third party tool like that, like just pick it up. I mean, you know, um, they've certainly tried to build a few of them like uh, CloudKit, which I haven't used is very similar to Parse, which I do use, which Facebook owns. Uh, You know, that's the kind of thing that that you know, they should just keep an eye out for that kind of stuff. Uh, and, and none of those are billion-dollar deals. Those are all yeah. much, much smaller. I think manufacturing in general is a big deal. And I can't help but wonder if – this is another purely hypothetical. But we know that they're building uh, like the Mac Pros in the U.S. or assembling them. Um, and if they have grand plans to shift more and more of their assembly to the United States – which, if they do, I th- my guess would be that it would be more along the lines of robotizing the assembly line. Because if you ever look like this, you know, it's surpri- it was surprising to me, like when we first started getting behind the scene looks at Foxconn and how phones are assembled and iPads are assembled and how much of it is just done by hand by just people at a bench, you know, putting, you know, putting these pieces together. I think if they brought that to the United States to make it cost effective, it would probably not be like a bonanza of manufacturing jobs. It would probably be about figuring out a way to roboticize the assembly. Mm-hmm. And then they could bring it internally. Um, and they'd have these roboticized assembly lines that no one else in the world would have, right? Like Foxconn gains the ability to do X, then anybody who uses Foxconn gets the ability to do X. And, and Apple, Foxconn itself too. I'm exactly I'm a, which a little we, surprised they have not been more competitive already. Right, and for example, just look at the um, the Nokia tablet that that looks is like a, a iPad Mini look alike, and it's every you know drilled aluminum, all this stuff. Uh, 
it's really like a relabeled Foxconn product. It's a Foxconn tablet that Nokia is putting their name on. Uh-huh. Well, where do you think Foxconn learned yeah, to make right. a tablet that looks like that? Well, they learned it from Apple. Uh, you know, I don't think it's any, you know, I don't think it's any coincidence that Samsung, which makes uh, you know a lot of components and until recently made all the CPUs for the iPhone and iPad, you know, got better at making cell phones after they you know worked with Apple on that. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised to see that. I, that to me would be an interesting way for Apple to spend money. And I think GT, the GT Advance deal was a sign of that. Like it's not just about materials, but maybe assembly in general. But maybe for some reason, you know, like why did why did they do the whole thing with GT Advance instead of Apple just making their making and owning their own Sapphire furnace? I don't know. For some reason, they seem resistant to. They want to decrease the risk, you know. And then if and if failed, you looked at the the court filings on the terms, like boy, did they ever decrease the risk? Like it's crazy how basically Apple has complete control over everything, and you know GT basically can't do anything, <laughs> right? And GT's like court filing was kind of pathetic because they were like they they made us this offer that was horribly unbalanced. And everybody's like, wow, Apple's really mean. You know, they even there was even a phrase where they, you know, quoted a guy that in a phone call, they a guy from Apple told them to put your big boy pants on. Yeah. <laughs> it was a very dismissive really. But my take on that is it wasn't like GT Advance had to say yes to this. They agreed to all of it. Right. And it's it's sort of like unsaid in their filings is, well, of course we said yes, because if it worked out, look at how much money we would have made. Totally. Right? Yeah. Meanwhile, there's a fifty million dollar NDA penalty. <laughs> yeah, that was an interesting thing that came out of it. Yeah. yeah, fifty, and it was, and it got worse. Like for subsequent ones. Yeah, it's great. Um, one thing I've noticed, and if you look at the list of suppliers and stuff for, that we know about Apple Watch, it's a it's a different list than that makes iPhone and iPad. Um, just like the component makers, it's coming from a lot of different companies, and I can't help but think that's because Apple is dissatisfied with their manufacturing partners for those things because of all the rampant leaks and could be, way, yeah, yeah, in a way that you know competing products seem to be piggybacking on their innovations. So I think that the one thing they could do with their resources now is um, try to make those try to make those things, uh, you know, something that they own. I think you know an ex- an interesting example of that already. I would say are the the A series systems on a chip, which uh, it, it's like they've turned the whole. We use different CPUs than the standard components that everybody else does thing on its head. In the old days, when Apple was on the Motorola sixty eight thousand chips and later PowerPC chips, and the P- Wintel industry was on x eighty six. Apple was selling in lesser quantities, and they could never. The quantities were never enough to to keep up. Right? There's no way for Motorola, and IBM, and the partners that were making PowerPC chips to really sustain the uh, the advances that were necessary to keep up with Intel because the numbers just weren't there. And Apple couldn't, you know, had no resources to do it on their own. Whereas now. By making you know these wildly popular, massively selling devices that are using these chips, they're they're getting the economy of scale advantages with their A5 series, you know, A6, A7, A8, um, and by all accounts, you know, like at a non-tech in those places, faster and far more power efficient chips than the Snapdragons that everybody else is using, and they you know they're not sharing. 
nobody else gets to make a phone with these amazing systems on a chip. How can they do more things like that? Yeah, and and, and, and so there's a hardware element to that, and then there's a software element, and um, and I think a lot of people and, and a services element too. I mean, what can you know? I I keep coming back to iCloud, and I'm trying to think like bigger picture. Is is iCloud a success so far? Um, and there's you know there's a lot of griping about little things here and there. I think it is sort of a success. I mean, you know, it backs up my phone every night and yeah. I don't even think about it. Um, and it seems like they, they're, they're trying to do more with it, but that's the kind of thing where, you know, that could, that could easily be a huge advantage over, over everyone else. Like, you know, just back people's stuff up, you know, make sharing super easy that's going to be hard to be a, a – it should be. It should get better, and they should keep – I think it is. I think it's quietly getting a lot better. I think that they're nibbling yeah. at the problems around the edges. But it's never going to be a sustaining advantage. It, it'll be, it has a lock-in advantage where once you're there and your backups are already there, it's a lot easier to just buy an iPhone and have your backup restored to the new iPhone than it is to switch to Android. But it's not really that big of a competitive advantage because Google stuff is so good at those things, you know, that – that you're, yeah, you know. Google, like, yeah, Gmail and Google Calendar and Google Hangouts are really good, but I, I don't know if Google Drive is really catching on no. or anything like that. So um, I don't know. Anyway. All right. I think that there, uh, Apple has a better chance. I, I think that cloud stuff in general, the best that they can hope for is to be as good as the state of the art. Whereas, right. And I think a lot of the, actually, a lot of the people saying that they should buy all these companies are saying, oh, they'll, they'll learn how to be better at the cloud if they own Twitter or Pinterest or something like that. And I, I mean, there was probably a point where I used to think that. I don't think that would help right now. No, I don't I think don't, so either. No. No, I don't think that the problem is fundamental, just generic cloud. I think the problem is just specific problems. Yeah. yeah, and Pinterest, him saying that they should buy Pinterest, I mean, Pinterest is a good company and they're doing interesting things, but it's it doesn't make any, again, it's the, same, the same thing with Twitter. I just don't see how that gives Apple any advantage in what they do. You know, it's if they think that, you know, Pinterest is a good investment today, it would it would be make far more sense for like, what's that company, Brayburn Capital? You know, the secretive Nevada company that, that controls Apple's... Uh, uh, investments you know ah. what, some of the stuff they do do you know with the cash uh you know it would make sense for brayburn to just buy stock in pinterest and just you know think you know they'll make money on it but rather than have apple buy them and and control them yeah well next time uh talk to M next time you talk to mg ask him if uh if he were running apple ventures instead of working at google ventures what he'd be doing with that hundred bill yeah <laughs> uh, let me take a break here and uh, thank our second sponsor of the show, our very good friends at Squarespace. You guys know what Squarespace is. It's the all-in-one place to build and host your website. What kind of website? Any website. You can use Squarespace to have a blog. You can use Squarespace to create a store with built-in commerce that you don't have to pay extra for. It's just part of being a Squarespace customer. Um, beautiful design, uh, all sorts of templates to choose from. All new Squarespace 7 platform where the way that you manage the design, the way that you change which of the components you you know have on each page, it's all drag and drop right there on the site itself. It's 
couldn't be easier. It's it's the way like when people said the web, you know, the the problem with the web originally as conceived back in the 90s was that it wasn't editable in itself. Uh, that's like what Squarespace is. Squarespace is like the editable web where you're just there. And if you're the, you know, if it's your site, you just edit anything you want right there in place. Super, super easy. Um, no technical knowledge whatsoever is necessary. But if you do have technical knowledge, and I know a lot of people who listen to this show do, you can get into the code and you can put your own JavaScript in pages. You can change, you know, the HTML and the templates and stuff like that. Um, 24 hour, seven day a week support via live chat and email. Uh, they've got support people all around the world. That's how they do the 24 hours a day thing. They've got them in, uh, Europe, New York, uh, I think Portland, Oregon. Uh, and it starts at just eight bucks a month, eight bucks a month. Incredibly. Uh, I, I don't even know how they, I don't know how they can do offer this for eight bucks a month. Uh, when you pay for the year, if you pay for a whole year in advance, you get a free domain name. Uh, all their templates feature responsive design. Everything scales to look great on iPhone 5, iPhone 6 Plus, iPad, Android tablets, anything. You name it, the designs look great, scaled to the right size. Uh, so if you have any reason to start a website, you're thinking you need a website for blank. doesn't matter what blank is. Check out Squarespace and see for yourself. When you sign up, uh, you can uh, get a free trial, no credit card necessary. Uh, go to squarespace.com slash the talk show. And then when you do pay, when your free trial's up and you're like, man, this is, an aw- this is just as awesome as, as Gruber said it was, I'm going to buy it. Just make sure to use this code JG. That's my initials. Uh, and you'll get 10% off and show your support for the talk show. So my thanks to Squarespace. All right. What else do you want to talk about today? Oh, well, something I want to talk to you about uh, for a while, and that's the the idea of institutional taste. And I think this might be a a Gruber term. I'm not sure. Uh, But I've been thinking about it. And, you know, as I've been kind of taking a look at companies this year and writing about them at Quartz, um, and I'm curious, like, you know, about a bunch of things. But I guess first, like, how, how do you define institutional taste? Uh, I would say it, it, it's almost like a cultural value, like a shared cultural value that it, you see things the same way and you value things the same way. Uh, one of the points, like a recurring theme in my work in recent years is the idea that the, it's not just what your priorities are, your top three priorities, but it matters what order those top three priorities are in. It matters which one you can say that you value, uh, you know, good, uh, you know, it, it, it just pick, you know, material, the, the materials you use, the shape and the weight, uh, or like with Apple, like, like they value thinness, they value weight, they value battery life, they value elegance, they value how it feels, um, but it's clear that Apple institutionally values thinness and weight more than they value battery life because otherwise they, you know, they've, I, here's, here's my old iPhone uh, 4 right here by my desk, um, which is, you know, I think when it came out was billed as being the world's thinnest phone. And if it wasn't, it was pretty darn close. Uh, and it's just a couple years ago. 
So, in, you know, if they valued battery more than thinness, I think that today's iPhone 6s would be maybe not as thick as the iPhone 4, but they'd be thicker than they are, and they would have used that thickness to put more battery in there. It just matters what, you know, which order those priorities are. Not that they don't care about battery life, but they obviously value thinness and weight above that. I think institutional taste, that's just a sign of it, and it 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 propagates that it's people who share those values and that taste that are drawn to work at the company and the company recruits people who share those values. And then it, you know, it, it sustains itself. I think it tends to. And, and I'm, you know, and obviously like this is something that Apple excels at, you know, whether, whether we can really define it or not, or really, um, you know, kind of explain everything that it applies to, uh, this is kind of a pro Apple argument to be made. Are, are there other companies you see that that you think have good institutional taste? I know we can name a bunch that have bad, you know, historically have had bad taste. Um, are there others that that you think have good taste? I think Google clearly does, and I think that's why they have uh, as rabid of fans as Apple does. But that they tend to be different people. You know, most people who truly say they love Google. Uh, either are ambivalent about Apple or they have mixed feelings about Apple. Probably mixed feelings is more common where they probably do use a MacBook. A lot of them use MacBooks, but that they feel more af af uh, affinity for Google. But Google's good taste is in things like simplicity and minimalism. I mean, I think the fact that if you just go to google.com and what you see on that page here in 2014 is so close to what you saw back in, you know, 2002 or whenever, you know, when Google was a beta at, at Stanford, where it's just a box and two buttons. And, you know, I mean, look at how, how much minimal crap they've added there. And, and for all, you know, that we complain about Google and the advertising that they do, that they've still resisted the urge to really put advertising on that homepage that they still only show it on results. Imagine what they could charge for just one ad, you know, something like the deck, you know, just one thing up in the corner on that page. Imagine what they could charge and they don't. And that's, you know, I think it's a sign of Google's taste. Do you think so? And I'll just throw this out there. I think that historically a, a company with, with bad taste has been Microsoft, yeah. um, you know, it, which shows in everything from their, kind of visual design to, you know, the awkwardness of their stage presentations to uh, product decisions and all that kind of stuff. But, but I've actually been surprisingly, um, I guess, surprised at how even I'm like their file, even little things like their file formats, like old yeah. versions, like when you read how, when somebody's backward engineered an old version of war, you know, the word, dot doc file yeah it's so con it's just horrible it's just it, it nobody would design a file format like that and if they had taste yeah, yeah i don't and i don't know if it was satire but like the microsoft bob logo is pretty much like emblematic of <laughs> yeah of, of microsoft uh it, it seems like it's getting a little better i don't know maybe you know they're, they're making some smart decisions now C can this taste be taught or changed or is it you know, in any sort of time frame that would matter, or is it the kind of thing that's kind of too deeply ingrained in a company to, to change? 
I think you have to go through some sort of stressful transition to change. And I think that's what we're seeing with Microsoft. I think, you know, and, and it's even bubbled up to the point where, you know, not that the, Ballmer, I don't think he got forced out, but he was, it's pretty close. It's about as close as you can get to forcing out a CEO of a, of a wildly profitable major corporation, right? I mean, and, and they're without any sort of, um, impropriety or anything like that. Nobody accused, you know, Bomber of, of any kind of, you know, fiscal impropriety or, or crimes or anything of the sort. Uh, it was really, I, I'm honestly, I think it really eventually his lack of taste caught up with him and the market had moved on. Right. And so I think Microsoft is going through that sort of transition and we definitely see it. I think, I mean, it's it, windows, you know, the new version of, of windows, you know, the stuff you see on the surface is, you know, it's absolutely positively not a copy of iOS and it's good. I, I don't think I would prefer it. I really don't. It's been a long time. It's been a couple of years since I tried living with Windows Phone, but uh, I don't think it's to my liking. But it certainly is. And it's and wherever it ranks in the world of of OS design right now, it certainly shows a taste that Microsoft never had in the old days. Yeah, and we, and and at the same time, we've gone from a company that used to say, you know, oh, why would anyone uh, buy their kids an iPod to Hey, we've got Office for iPad, and or why would anyone buy their kids an iPod or whatever? Right. Um, to now, there's Office for iPad, and they're, and they're integrating Dropbox into PowerPoint, and all you know this kind of stuff. And uh, it seems really, I don't know, it just, maybe it's uh, maybe it's too short a time frame, but I, I do. I'm uh, I'm a little excited by what I see there. I would go so far as to tie it, tie it together with the first half of the show and say that it's actually not even so much about taste, but that Microsoft is institutionally backing away from the view that they can do it all themselves and that they should do it all themselves. Like the, the Microsoft at its peak of industry dominance did everything other than the hardware. And they, you know, and they really kind of defined PC hardware, you know, in a way that, that they, without making any piece, without it making any PCs themselves, they had enormous influence on it. But they literally did everything. They wrote their own operating system. Uh, they wrote all of the major apps for that operating system. Uh, they had their own developer tools. They had their own, eventually, you know, like with C Sharp, their own developer and Visual Basic, their own languages. Uh, they went their own way in a route that it was just unprecedented, you know, uh, and that nobody else has ever really tried to do again. And and this is where I tie it with the first half of the show is to me, the warning sign for Apple, like the biggest canary in the coal mine as we, you know, how is Apple, you know, going to, you know, what am I looking for to see if Apple is maybe starting to lose their edge are signs of hubris, right? I think that's the word that Microsoft had and that, that that's the today's Microsoft doesn't have that anymore. Like, and all, like all those things you just listed, um, you know, where they're advertising the iOS apps, they're uh, integrating with Dropbox. Uh, I just saw a thing the other day this week where now that you can do, um, they have a thing where they're running on Google's cloud services. Oh, yeah. Right? You can run Exchange and, uh, you know, run Windows servers in Google's cloud. Uh, all of those things are signs that they now, they're, they're, they're off of that, you know, Microsoft only all the way down the stack. 
Totally. Uh, and I guess we should also disclose they've also, you know, sp- sponsored your podcast and your app yeah. and that kind of yeah. stuff, which, yeah. you know. Totally. Uh, exactly. That's a good point. No, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And I'll tell you the fact that uh, Azure and all the window, you know, all their, all their cloud-based services are absolutely positively not designed as cloud services for Microsoft client devices. They are designed as cloud, uh, 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 what's the word? Uh, agnostic. Yeah. You know, they're just, they're just good cloud services. Yeah. So I'm, I'm very interested to see uh, what, what some of the most, you know, balmery Microsoft stuff, what happens to that? Like those, those stores that were kind of crappy ripoffs of Apple stores. Um, you know, what happens to those now? Uh, that kind of stuff. But yeah. we'll, we'll see. It's, you know, it's only been uh, it's less than a year. So I'll tell you a company who I think has bad institutional taste is Amazon. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. Really, and, and you know really what? And I think taste. that's what. That's exactly what inspired me to ask you about this. Was thinking about that, that that phone, man. <laughs> that the Amazon phone? phone. Oh yeah. Did you ever? Did you ever use one? No, I haven't yet. Yeah, I haven't either. But boy, it, it the reviews it were bad. And now that it's been on the market for a while, and I've seen a little bit more like random, a few random people who just picked one up on a lark. It's uh, it's even worse. Like the, the the things I've seen from people who aren't like gadget reviewers from The Verge or whatever site, people who re- just review a lot of phones, where the Fire Phone was, in my opinion, very poorly reviewed in general. But the just real people who don't do it, who just bought it to see what it's like, really just scorched it. It's it's bad in every way. And it's funny because I like Amazon as a service. Like I probably spend more money on Amazon than any other place besides my you know whoever owns my apartment building but uh just the you know they've never had a good looking website all their hardware stuff just screams out you know either we're just doing this to do it or we don't really care that much about how good it is to use um you know the scathing reviews of the the kindle the newest kindle saying you know look this is supposed to be the the top end e-reader in the world why don't you Treat it like that. They've uh, never had good page turning on a Kindle ever. Yeah, like it's the most astounding thing in all of consumer electronics. That, and it, it it's not astounding that the first one or the second one or maybe even the third one didn't have great page turning. But it's astounding to me that it really has never gotten you know just iteratively better year after year. And at this point, after you know seven or eight years on the market, that they don't have page turning down is crazy. Or even like justifying the text, you know, forcing it to be fully, you know, the full width of the screen and right. not letting you left justify it. I just, I wrote about this, this a few, I wrote about this a few weeks ago. It's a solved computational problem. It's not easy, but it's solved and there are even open source solutions to it. Tech, uh, the T lowercase e capital X um, typesetting system that Donald Knuth created, uh, you know, Back in the seventies, uh, there's an open. You know, there, I linked to a, a, a an academic paper that one of his students wrote in like 1980. That just you know, and it's not. It's a solved problem to do proper justification without unseemly gaps between words and with intelligent use of hyphenation. It's it's a solved problem, and yet they don't do it in the Kindle. It's crazy. 
Yeah. Well, they don't have good fonts. They don't, you know, the font selection is atrocious. And it, these, it's not like, it's not like having good fonts and good line, you know, layout isn't a, a core part of what the device, it's the whole point of the device. Yeah, it would exactly. Be like, it would be like if the iPods didn't really have good music playback. Right. Yeah. Although uh, maybe some argue that they didn't, but still, you know, if you're, if you're trying to make the best reading device in the world, which I guess they're not, um, you know, they would, they would certainly act more like it or maybe they're, they're doing the best they can, which is where the, the institutional taste comes in is just that they don't. The difference is that most people view a book as a string, meaning, you know what I mean? Like in programming terms that it's right. A string of text. And that if you review somebody's novel, it doesn't really matter what nobody. I've I've never seen for you know, and, and it just indicates what I'm obsessed with. But I've never seen a book review that includes a review of the layout of the book. Whereas if I reviewed a book, I'd I, I would I'd be tempted to do that. Like to me, I would sort of, clearly it's not the main reason you read a novel. And I guess in general, I would rather read an interesting, well written novel that's poorly typeset than read a terrible novel that is beautifully typeset. Of course, that's the difference. But then, and, and even me as somebody obsessed with typography would agree with that. Whereas with music, nobody ever says, I don't care if the music sounds bad, you know, like at a technical level, it's fundamental to listening to music. But as the person making the device, it should be, you know, you sh that should be the obsession. You know, the people making Kindles lead at the top level of the design team should be people who are obsessed with good typography. It's criminal that they're not. And yeah, I think, but I think it's a sign of app, Amazon's institutional taste, their priorities. I, yeah, I think that nails it. I'm going to take a moment here and thank our uh, good friends at Harry's. Now, if you're a regular listener of the show, you know what Harry's makes. They make high-quality men's shaving products. Uh, they come in amazing packages. They make their own blades. They built their own razor blade factory, or they bought a razor blade factory in Germany. They make their own blades. They've got great, high-quality handles. Uh, shaving creams, foam, foaming gels, um, uh, aftershave, you name it. If it is a shaving product, they make it. And it's great quality at amazing prices uh, compared to the mass market stuff you buy in uh, drugstores. Really great stuff. Well, look, it's the holidays. And if you're listening to this show on or before December 17th, they have a fantastic holiday offer for you. Use this code. Talk show holiday, all one word, talk show holiday. That's uh, not the regular code. That's the one just for this holiday offer. What that code gets you is it gets you five bucks off their winter Winston set. The winter Winston set comes with a chrome handle, three of their high quality blades, and either their shaving gel or the foam. Uh, your choice. It's already wrapped and you know how cool their packaging is. It is a fantastic gift. You might never think to give uh, shaving products as a gift, you know, regular Gillette or crap like that. Uh, Harry's, though, I think this would make a fantastic gift. So go to harrys.com. Uh, use this code, TALKSHOWHOLIDAY, and order the Winner Winston set. Save five bucks uh, for anybody on your shopping list. Great deal. Great product. Great offer. My thanks to uh, Harry's. All right, last bit. So last bit. So let's let's talk about Instagram, which uh, just announced three hundred million 
active users, which is m- almost entirely uh, likely more than Twitter has at this point. Uh, Twitter yeah. has not yet released their December quarter numbers, and it's a little different because they do the quarterly average. But Yeah, and if you look at the graph, though, it's pretty clear that Instagram is growing ex- faster. Yeah. And uh, it's pretty amazing. I think it's, you know, it, it's certainly the, the number two or number three app that I check after I wake up. Um, and it's, it's kind of cool that, you know, even after Facebook bought them, although that kind of maybe gives them an edge too, uh, although Facebook hasn't really integrated as much as, as it could have, um, that it's still well, growing so quickly, I- it still feels like very much of its own thing. I, I think it totally does. I would say as somebody who doesn't use Facebook... And therefore it was, and for very specific reasons that it just doesn't appeal to me when they bought Instagram, I, and and I was a big fan of Instagram. I was very worried. And they said, oh, but we're not going to mess with it. We're not going to Facebook eyes it. We're going to let Kevin Systrom and his team, you know, do, we bought them because we love what they're doing and we're going to have them keep doing what they're doing. And it's like, I've heard that before, right? You hear that every time there's a, a popular thing gets acquired. You hear it's not going to get. We're not going to mess it up, and most of the time it gets messed up eventually. Uh, and it's, it, I would say, from the outside, uh, as an Instagram user, it's completely true. If you did, if I didn't follow tech news, I would have no idea that Instagram was bought by uh, by Facebook. So, and I made a kind of a, a jerky tweet the other day, but one of the things that surprised me the most is, you know, and you and you could say like, oh, are they just kind of napping over there? Um, they they've changed it so little that it almost could could seem like it's negligence. Um, not that I think that they should throw a bunch of features at it, but there's a lot of little things that I think are still missing from Instagram that um, that would really actually make it better. Uh, for example, you know something as simple as being able to have multiple users in the app, so that you know I, I know a woman who runs four Instagram accounts for three restaurants and her personal one. And every time you want to switch accounts, mm-hmm. you literally have to sign out and then sign in with your username and password. Um, yeah, Con- Conceptually, Instagram is very similar to Twitter. It's it. And, and comparing Twitter to Facebook is difficult uh, because it's just different purposes, very different design. But fundamentally, Instagram is Twitter for pictures. Yep. And combined with that instead of having replies, you have comments on the picture. And so it's slightly different order. The pictures are still Twitter order, newest at the top, oldest at the bottom. Uh, the only real conceptual difference in the main timeline is that comments go under the picture they're commenting on as opposed to Twitter where the replies are all in a, a chronological stream as well. Yeah. Um, very, very similar. And so therefore, I completely agree with you. It makes every bit of sense that you could have multiple accounts in Instagram that it does in Twitter. Right. And it's you know something like that where another one is like hyperlinks. Like you, you can – you can't even link a you know a comment which uh, you you can't put a link in a comment or or anywhere really which you know on one hand cuts down spam you're not you don't have as much people spamming links on the other hand you see people like uh, you know both humans and companies saying uh, here's something we did to access it go to our bio and click the link in our bio yeah that's that's cl- that's a very and it's a hack it's a clever yeah. hack but it's still it's like you know. 
these are places where a competitor could eventually catch catch hold. Another one is shopping. Like there, and now there are in in the U.S. There's a company called Spring, and in Japan there's a company called Origami that you know are basically Instagram with a buy button attached to it. Uh, hmm. And even just a hyperlink from Instagram would do so much to make services like that unnecessary. Uh, and I wonder if it's Instagram just keeping things really simple because that's what works and it's really hard to argue with that you know you know they've done so well uh or if you know a a few little features like that could really have gone a long way yeah and if the if the hyperlinks work the way they do in almost all twitter clients where instead of bouncing you out to a third-party browser it opens a web view right there in the app you're not even losing the engagement because when they close the web view they're probably going to be right back where they were in Instagram. So I don't think it's about like a, a engagement trapment, right? I, right? I can only guess that it's a spam thing. But even then, I feel like that's making us, the users, suffer for a problem that they're supposed to solve. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, mean, imagine if Twitter said, oh, we're getting rid of all links because right. of spam. I mean, you know, it's just, no, right. you, you can't do that. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I would think that the way that they would do it would be to follow Twitter's lead and do their own Tico thing because that's that's fundamental to Twitter's anti. I, I know that they do other things too, and that they you know they track all sorts of analytics through all the links that go through Twitter now that they're all redirected through T.co. Um, but part of it too is that it lets them centralize spam and, and malware and that kind of stuff. Right, right. Any kind of bad anything. I, I say spam meaning anything that would that is like ooh we should delete that. And identify the user as a you know, yeah. Uh, Are they turning out the lights on you? I think uh, no, I haven't been kicked out. You know, it's funny. There's supposed to be another meeting in here right now. Yeah. And I emailed the person asking if I can use the room, so they might show up angrily any minute now. But um, so <laughs> we another, can sign another, we can sign off on a moment to notice. But uh, I heard I heard a loud click. And no, I, that I was, was that was, was me missing <laughs> missing the garbage can with my uh, seltzer. Uh, sorry about that. So uh, another okay. feature is uh, the you know the equivalent of the reblog, the regram. Uh, and, and I could totally see why they don't, why they don't have that feature because, you know, then it's all your photos and it's, it's more authentic and it's not a bunch of junk, but on the other hand, people are hacking that and there are apps that will let you, you know, do this regram, even a video, uh, with an overlay and that kind of stuff. Huh. Have you seen those? No, I haven't. Okay. Well, I see them, but you I know, could, I know what you mean though. It's probably not even like 5% of the pictures in my feed and, and I'm sure if there were regramming. Uh, it would be more than that, but it's still interesting that that's the kind of thing where pretty much every other stream-based social network has added that feature. You know, whether it's Tumblr's reblog or right. on Vine, you can revine. On yeah. Twitter, you can retweet. On Instagram, you basically have to re-upload a photo. I would almost else. say it's the defining feature of Tumblr. Yeah. Yeah. Probably. Yeah, that's interesting, and it's hard. You have to, and and from a phone. You're kind of stuck because you can't just save an Instagram to your local thing and pick it out and put it back in. You've got to do goofy stuff. Like most, usually, I guess when I do see it, it's usually just like a screenshot. It's a screenshot, and there are apps that do this. It's like Regram app or something like that. Huh. Um, and and this, these are you know these are all I'm sure decisions that they've made, and they, they seem to have just decided no for all of them. And again, it's really hard to argue with with them. They've right whatever they're doing is working so well that. You almost can't argue that they could be doing better, and they and they've made little changes like the explore screen is so much more interesting now that they are 
basing it on your friends and and yeah. people you follow. So that's great. Uh, the the image tools that they built, the you know not just the filters, but the the different image tools are really 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 good. You know, I also think that they have excellent uh, notification controls because I easily and without any confusion set up Instagram so that I'm only notified when people who I follow do something of interest. Like I don't want notifications when any Joe on the internet favorites one of my Instagrams. I only want ones, you know, I, I get very few. Can you notifi- believe people leave that on? Like I'll pick up someone's phone sometimes and they'll have 40. <laughs> I will not name names because I find it to be such a, a curiously needy feature, but I do, I have definitely seen people who have that turned on. Uh, and pe- would, but, well, I look, would... I look at see who, you know, who likes my photos. That's, I think that's one of the most interesting parts of that. Uh, oh yeah. But I don't want notifications for yeah, it. No, no, I, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm not, it's not like I don't care and I don't like look back at yesterday's thing and then open up the right. list and see it, but I don't want notifications for it. Totally. And then right. another one is like, they don't have an iPad app and yeah, that's a huge one. It drives that's... me crazy because it's actually, you know, at first there people were like, well, why would you use Instagram on an iPad? Who's taking photos on an iPad? Well, the answer is. A lot of people take photos on an iPad, and I look at a ton of Instagram on the iPad, and it's actually gotten better. It's actually, well, it's really great on the iPhone 6 Plus, and it's gotten a little better over the years as the uh, 2X multiplication uh, setup on the iPad has, has gotten a little better, but it's still, it's like, come on, is it really, is it yeah. that hard to make an iPad up? Maybe it is. I don't know. No, but, not in broad strokes, not... Now, once you can, it might be depending on how your app was architected. But if you're able to support the new iPhone six sizes, then you're doing stuff that makes it really easy to do iPad two. In fact, it's so easy that it, with this whole size class thing, and um, you know, it was a huge, huge point of emphasis at WWDC this year. It's a huge part of iOS eight. All of it clearly was, you know, about setting things up so that apps were ready for the iPhone six with the new two new sizes. Um, but it's so it, it, creating an iPad app now is really almost almost like just creating another bigger iPhone size. If you can do the six and six S, you can do the iPad. And I say that even though Vesper, which does support the six and six S, still doesn't have an iPad version. But if we really wanted to drop everything else we were doing and do that, it actually wouldn't be that much work. And Marco even talked about that with Overcast, where he got uh, uh, an ac- he called it an accidental version of an iPad version of Overcast. Uh, oh yeah, I remember? Yeah, because there was a bug where if you used a storyboard for your startup screen, didn't matter if you also specified in your XML that hey, I, th- me this app I'm I'm iPhone only. Um, so if I'm running on an iPad, run me in the iPhone mode. Uh, the OS had a bug where if you had that storyboard as your startup image, it would say, oh, you're a modern app, so I'll run you as an iPad app. And it actually, without him ever even intending it or trying it, it actually was was usable. So yes, it, there's it, it, at this point, it seems like there's no technical reason why Instagram should not have an iPad app. And then one more is the icon. I mean, you know, every literally every app on my iPhone home screen has done something a little more iOS 7 inspired. I can almost see it. I'm not an icon artist, but I can almost see what the flat Instagram icon would look like. 
keep the colors, keep the basic gimmick that it looks like uh, a Polaroid, and just flatten it. Right. So is this, uh, you know, they're, and they're not, not doing these things to spite people. So I just wonder, and I, I guess I should probably be a good journalist and ask them. <laughs> Uh, and maybe I will, but it's still uh, it's as as a frequent user, it has it has puzzled me over the years, and yeah. especially recently, as you see that it is, you know, arguably the second or third most important social network in the world. That uh, you know, and I totally am on the side of simplicity and saying no and all that stuff. But uh, yeah, well, I think that your your bucket list right there, your checklist of what Instagram would should do, is excellent because it does to me it doesn't add any complexity like supporting the ipad doesn't make using instagram more complex it just makes it better you know yeah and and in addition i'll just throw out this point in addition to the fact that you're right that a lot of people and apple even admits it now that a lot of people use their ipad as a camera for for producing ipad or instagram content but clearly photography is something that always looks better bigger always so it would be better if you had both you know, side by side, it would always be better to look at Instagram uh, on the iPad. I think when they eventually do, I think they will, right? They're going to come out with an iPad app. I think when they do, people are going to be like, wow, this is amazing. I can't believe that they didn't do this before. Totally. All right. So if you're Kevin Systrom, get on it, man. Yeah. <laughs> and you I, know what? I, and I understand like that, you know, as part of Facebook, they've had to build out an advertising business and I find their ads to be totally fine. Like they're not, you know, I look at them and I see, oh, that's kind of cheesy. So that's an ad, but I'm not mad that it's there. Uh, and I know that they have to build a business. So I'm happy that they're doing that. And maybe that's, you know, maybe they're waiting on adding hyperlinks until they have a commerce business of some sort. But uh, it, it just, you know, it it makes me maybe like them a little less, I guess. Yeah, I, I wonder know. if that's what they're holding out for, that you're only going to get you only get links if you pay for it. I don't know, but that doesn't make yeah, just I don't I don't know if that helps anyone either. So. Yeah. Cool. Uh, All right. Well, I love Instagram and I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to be a jerk, but uh I think one way that you can measure and I know that this monthly active viewers thing is like the industry standard numerically, but I feel like the way that you can the better way to measure social networks is when you're out in the real world and you look at like the menu at the restaurant you're at or the window of the place where you're going to buy, uh, you know, a baked goods or something like that, which icons do they have there? Right. And it, for a long time, it was just Facebook and Twitter at a lot of places I saw. Mm-hmm. Um, or YouTube or yeah. 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 Depending on, you know, yeah, sometimes YouTube, but usually if a big one, it, it was Facebook and Twitter, the pairing. Yep. And, Man, I see Instagram everywhere now. I, I don't know. Oh, I, yeah. I, I should, I'll actually, I'm going to make an effort now that if I see Facebook and Twitter, but don't see Instagram, I'll take a picture of it and start collecting it. And I'll bet I don't, I bet I don't get many of them. I see Instagram everywhere. It's clearly on par with Twitter in terms of that. Um, and I would even add, uh, it, going back to Eric Jackson's thing, I do see the Pinterest logo a lot more places now. Not as much as those as Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, but it's growing. Yep. Yeah, I think so. Especially anything with like a visual component to it. Uh, shopping, food, uh, you know, that sort of stuff. Yeah. I, actually, I actually think, you know, not to get uh, too deep on this, but I actually think that companies 
make better Instagrammers than they make Twitter users. Uh, I think that, you know, I, I follow a lot of restaurants and stores that I've been to on vacations and that kind of thing on Instagram, you know, even, even places I may never go back to just to kind of remember them, uh, that I would never follow on Twitter. Cause on Twitter they're talking, you know, here are our daily specials or something like that, or here's a link to a story that we were mentioned in. Whereas on Instagram, they're showing photos of, of their shop or of their neighborhood or of their products or of their customers and that kind of stuff. And I, yeah, I, I actually I find it really interesting. I follow the official Yankees account on Instagram and Twitter. And on Twitter, a lot of the time when they tweet, my, my finger starts hovering towards the unfollow button. <laughs> uh, and on Instagram, it's almost always great. It's like a, some kind of picture of, you know, either, either something going on in the current Yankees season and from us, from a staff member with incredible access, right? Like, you know, on the field at batting practice, like a great angle, uh, of something, uh, or it's like a piece of history, like a, a history. And, and it always makes me smile. It's like exactly why I wanted to follow them on Instagram. Whereas on t Twitter, it's just a bunch of hashtags and shit. Yeah. Where, you know, and this is like maybe to close out, you know, Evan Williams yesterday was quoted, I think in fortune, uh, saying, I don't give a shit if Twitter has more users than Instagram, which is well put. And by the way, side aside, uh, Evan Williams is working way harder than, than Evan Williams needs to be working. He's really done a great job with Medium. And yeah, uh, yeah. and I'm really impressed by that. Uh, anyway, I, but I think he's right. I think that Twitter and Instagram, like comparing them because you have the same metric, monthly active users, sure, that's that's fair. But they really are different products. Um, yeah. You know, and, and there's there's obviously bad blood because Twitter probably could have and should have bought Instagram and, you know, yeah. and Facebook, should you know, that, that kind of thing. But, yeah, and I think in their buyer's remorse over not having bought them is why they bought Vine, and Vine right. is, you know, I don't think it's a failure, but it's not at that level. I don't see yeah, Vine. Yeah, it still exists, but and it's doing some interesting stuff, but it's not Instagram. Nobody's putting Vine logos on their restaurant windows. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm, I, it's not no, even no. a joke, but it's a really good sign of real-world, you know, awareness. I, I, I'll tell you another thing I noticed about Instagram is I, when I go to, like, uh, sporting like a Yankee game or something like that. I see people t taking Instagrams and using Instagram more on their phone, more than I see them tweeting. Do you want to hear something funny? Is that while we've been taping this uh, podcast, about 20 people I work with have stopped by this conference room and taken pictures of me through the glass. <laughs> and I and I bet they're going to wind up on Instagram and not on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> if you see him, send him to me. We'll, yeah, I will. We'll, we'll uh, put them together in yeah, the show it's notes. It's been very strange. Like, you know, the first couple, I was like, haha, very funny. And like 10 people have taken pictures of me. Um, but anyway, but my bigger point is like Twitter and Instagram are not really the same thing. I mean, Twitter no. is like breaking news from the from the fronts, you know, the, 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 the war fronts in in. Ferguson, although I guess Instagram, there, you know, people were posting photos and that kind of stuff. But you know, Twitter is like the global pulse of information. And Instagram is, you know, look how cool my life is, that kind of thing. So, yeah. Uh, comparing or look at them, this, look at this, yeah. Or look at this thing or look at where I am. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Here's where I am. If anything, Instagram has destroyed something like Foursquare more than it, more than it has really affected Twitter. And Twitter's, yeah. Twitter's problems are its own problems. You know, there are, there are so many things that Twitter needs to figure out, but competing with Instagram, I don't think is the answer.
uh, and being upset that, you know, or, or people trying to make them look small because Instagram has more users. I don't think right. that has anything to do with it. Yeah. It's this, like I said, it's the same concept. It's just, you pick a list of people or certain, you know, companies and you will see a chronological stream of what they post. Same concept as Twitter, but in practice, because of the differences in what it is, you know, photos versus text, it, it ends up having a very different purpose. And in fact, what you just said is actually kind of interesting because it's almost like Instagram is a better fulfillment of Twitter's original idea of its purpose. The, what am I doing right now? Right. It used to be like, wasn't that, what was the original prompt for Twitter in a few? Oh, like, uh, I don't know. It's like, what's up or, you know, what are you doing? What's going on? Yeah. Maybe that's what it is now. You know, and people used to tweet like in 2006. What's happening? Like, yeah. Like at, at at the dentist or something like that. Yeah. Totally. And like nobody would tweet that anymore. Right. No. Like nobody's going to tweet at the dentist, just those words. Um, but well, uh, I you would... know who will, uh, Steve Wozniak will, <laughs> <laughs> but I have definitely He's... see like yeah. when I see like friends, I'll see friends who take like a first person perspective of their feet in the dentist chair. Yeah. It's like, right. Oh, you know, hope he's, you know, hope he's feeling, I hope he doesn't have a bad, you know, like some kind of tooth problem. Yeah, Totally. And it fits. It you know you don't mind it if you can compose it artistically. No, I said this week great. when that when that news when that news broke. And again, like you said, I don't think it's any kind of bad news for Twitter that Instagram's bigger. It's just it's just an interesting sign. It just you know and doesn't mean that they're even more valuable than Twitter. It's just interesting. Um, but I do think though that their part of their success is that they've kept that simplicity and 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 there's like a. They know the people running Instagram and designing it and keeping it, they know exactly what it is and they get it. Whereas to me, part of Twitter's problem in recent years is that the people running Twitter don't seem to get what Twitter is. They're just, they've, they've seeming, they, to me, they seem lost. And I think part of it is that they have this ambition to be as big as Facebook. And I think the problem is, is that what Twitter is good for is fundamentally never going to be as big and as profitable as what Facebook is. And so can you live with that? You know, why not? If you, if you're still profitable. Yeah. I think that's a great way of putting it. Like, like if you make, uh, I don't know, a, a, a toaster ovens and you find out that the toaster oven business is not as profitable as the automobile industry. Should you start making cars? No, I don't, you know, just, you know, keep making good toaster ovens if, you know, and just let it be, let it be the business that it is, you know? And I just think that Twitter is so obsessed with Facebook that they've lost their way at a leadership level. Yeah. Or, or, well, I don't know if it's, I don't know if they, if they think that way internally, I think that the, uh, the outside perspective, especially the, among the investor community is like, well, why isn't Twitter becoming as big as well, Facebook? Well, my, my, my evidence that I think that there's a, that they do it internally is the way that first person or not first person, first uh, party Twitter clients, meaning if you go to twitter.com or you use the Twitter app, that your timeline is now has, is no longer just the simple chronological order of here are the people you follow in their tweets, you know, that there's all sorts of other stuff that's injected in there, you know? Yeah, but I don't think that stems from trying to be more like Facebook. I think that is trying to solve the problem that most people have a shitty timeline because they don't follow enough people. They signed up for Twitter. They maybe maybe followed, auto-followed the people that were suggested to them. But 
getting people to keep following more Twitter accounts is kind of essential to building a really great timeline. Like I love my timeline. I also follow 3,300 people, uh, you know, and I even run out of stuff to read. So how do you automatically like pre-install a really great timeline for someone that's based on what they like? And that's, I think that's what they're trying to get at with this algorithmic stuff. Uh, and what I would like to see from Twitter is exactly this like pre-installed kit. Like if you could go to the homepage and say, show me soccer Twitter right now, boom. And I'm following mm. a thousand accounts that are, people are talking about really great soccer, or let me see tech media Twitter, if you know, around an Apple event or something like that. Um, yeah. And don't be as simplistic as a hashtag, right? Like what they've got now right. is if you use the exact right hashtag, you can do it, but only if all the tweets are using the hashtag, whereas it, it seems, you know, Google, Google web search seems like, like existence proof that you could build something where you could just say soccer, like you said, and just get it, figure it out. Like here's some great soccer tweets to follow. So I think that's what they're trying to get at. And, and, you know, as is typical for Twitter, the worst thing they they ever do is explain themselves. So, uh, they've done a, a typically poor job explaining why they're doing any of this stuff, and you know, and now with new, with yet another product leader, who knows what they're going to keep working on, what they're not going to keep doing. Although I will say, um, the new guy in charge of product, Kevin, has been there forever, and you know, if, if there's anyone I, as a user, trust to not be a hoser, it's him. So <laughs> let's. Uh, <laughs> all right. <laughs> I can't beat that. Yeah. Uh, Dan Fromer, thank you very much for your time. Yeah, where, thank you. Where, where can people find out more uh, from Dan Fromer? Oh, follow me on Twitter, Fromdome, or on Instagram if you want to see uh, cute dog photos, I guess. Um, yeah, those are the best places to follow me now. Right now, I'm, I'm mostly writing at Quartz, which is qz.com. Uh, but you'll find all the best at From Dome. Linked from linking to the court stuff. Yeah, everything, everything yeah. I do, you know, yeah. wherever it is. Yeah, let's get you some Instagram followers. Yeah. Oh, and they're getting rid of all the spam accounts, so we'll see how many uh, spam followers I have. Ends up, I was not following you on Instagram. Oh, but I'm, I am. Now. I'm, uh, I'm decent on Instagram. Yeah, it's, it's good, a little it's a braggy. Account. It's like, hey, look at me, I'm in Tokyo. But uh, so what? You know, I think that's yeah, what it's, it's for. Yeah, I agree. I like it. Yeah. Um, See, I didn't know you were in Tokyo. I I, I'm not right now. I was. I know. I'm yeah. looking at the pictures. I actually have some really great uh, stories I'm working on from Tokyo that, that I was reporting in Tokyo that I'll be publishing over the next few weeks. I did two already. One um, one was uh, – did you see that new OK Go video? Yes, the one with the that was shot from a drone. Yeah, yeah. So I went to. So I was in Tokyo. I think now three weeks ago, or maybe maybe something like that. So I emailed Honda and said, "Hey, can I uh, can I ride one of those things?" And so I I got to meet the guy who invented it and ride around one of those little scooters. They're called a Uni Cub, uh, and that was awesome. That was super fun. So if you if you search, uh, well, I don't even know how you would find this. I should put a link on my website to these stories sooner than later. Yeah. Um, and another thing is uh, Toshiba, like like most Japanese, old Japanese tech companies, is struggling with growth. Uh, so they took an old floppy disk factory in the suburbs of Tokyo and turned it into a clean room indoor lettuce farm. Uh, 
So I toured that and posted a bunch of photos of that. And that was super cool. I had to put on kind of a half bunny suit and sterilize my camera. And, uh, but it was, it was awesome. It's it a great a, shot. It's yeah, great it was shot. very cool. So, uh, that stuff is on my Instagram, I guess. Actually it is. And, um, you can't link through to the stories because Instagram doesn't <laughs> allow any links. But Because they're not listening to Dan Frommer. Yeah, whatever. 